0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 17. As we take a look at the book of Genesis, we are going to do a recap for a moment on where we left off because we did cover 16 chapters in the book of Genesis before the Lord led us. Back to the house, where we would kind of change gears and we focused on the life of David. We focused on the book of Acts. But now, with the desire to finish studying the book of Genesis, we recall the origin of creation, the creation of man, how God and his all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing majesty and his beauty and his justice and his mercy and his grace. He created the world. He created the heavens and the earth. And because of this, we know that there's nothing too hard for him. It only took him... Six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And it was in those six days that he created everything from the stars and the sky. There was uh, darkness and the earth was void and God just formed it and created land and water. The massive land animals and the great creatures of the sea. He created all of these. All just in this harmony, in this beautiful garden he created there in Eden. And it was there that he put Adam, the first human being. And we wonder, did Adam have a belly button? He has no father. He has no mother. God was his dad. And there, the Lord had this deep, intimate fellowship with Adam. And Adam was doing the will of the Lord as he was going about and naming all the different animals that God had created. Look at the mind that God gave Adam to be able to name all these different creatures. But Adam was feeling lonely. He saw that all the creatures had helpmates and pairs, but he himself had none. So God put Adam in a deep sleep and he took from Adam's closest part to his heart. What the Bible says uh, in our version is a rib and it's this portion of, of, of the body that's closest to the heart. And from that piece, God created Eve. And then Adam, that day when he woke up, he saw Eve and went, whoa, man. I told myself I would never say that joke, but here I am saying it. Because he was blown away by a woman, by this beauty that God had made for him. And there, Adam and Eve had fellowship with each other. They had fellowship with the Lord. But we know this next part of the story. The part of the story that is the cause of every terrible thing that happens in this world today. Satan himself in the form of a serpent went to Eve and tempted her. Tempted her into disobeying the word of the Lord. He made her question God's word. She then began to stumble over her thoughts of what God really said and began to add to what God told her to do. Until finally, she gave in and when she saw that the fruit that God had told Adam and Eve not to eat, she saw that it was good to eat and that it was going to open her eyes and that she would be like God. And she ate of this fruit. And then she gave it to her husband, Adam. And then they both ate. And since then, sin has entered humankind. A plague, a disease, a condition that no one has been able to find a cure for. There is no human cure for this. There's no Uh, amount of work that you can do to become sinless. There's only one work that makes us perfect. And that work is the saving work of Jesus Christ. When we enter into eternity, and that's for his children, for those who choose him, for those who he has chosen But now what we live in today is this fallen world. And we see it every day in our own lives, on the news, in our friends' and family's lives. So they fell, and quickly after their fall, their firstborn sons, Cain and Abel. You remember Cain murdered Abel out of jealousy. We had the first murder in the Bible. But then they had more sons and there was a promise that was given to Eve that from her seed, a savior would come and this savior would crush the head of the enemy, the serpent, Satan, and the enemy would bite on his heel. So Eve looked forward to perhaps this would happen in her lifetime. So they had children. They, they, listened to the Lord, and they multiplied. And from all the children, years and generations came by, wickedness came into these people's lives. So abundant that the Lord, it says that he had this this emotion of, of regret. Now, God doesn't make mistakes, but the Bible uses this word so that we can relate to how God was feeling, that he felt this emotion of remorse for how much wickedness had entered humanity. And because of this, he knew that he had to wipe out the world with a flood. But the Bible teaches us that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Noah and his family were saved. God told Noah, Noah, build an ark and I want you and your family to go in there. And then God brought all the animals two by two to to him. And this was God's grace. God keeping humanity for a purpose, for a reason. Because he created us so that we can be his pleasure, so that he can delight in us. And God saw grace upon Noah. And then Noah and his family, they, once the ark settled down on land, then they began to multiply and have more children and families upon families. We read about the Tower of Babel and how after many years and many people multiplying, how they were all unified in one civilization And humanity began to say, look, why don't we build this great tower so that we can begin to be like the heavenly realm and communicate with them? You see, we don't have a need for God now at this point. And God saw that this pride in man was going to put their minds and hearts so high and so far apart from the heart of God That in God's wisdom, he sent confusion amongst all the people. He gave them different languages and different tongues to begin to speak in as they were creating this tower of Babel. You say, now what's so wrong with humankind all joining hands together and singing Kumbaya and us all being unified under one nation? You see, it's that type of thinking that puts humans as God, that the Antichrist is going to use that agenda to get everyone under one banner, under one nation, one world order, one government, so that we don't need God anymore. But that's Antichrist. And it's not from God. So since God confused all these people's languages, they spread out and then from there, many nations were being divided and, and born and birthed. And then the book of Genesis takes a turn from this point. As it was following the origin of humankind and all these different peoples, God then begins to focus on one type of people. And that's the people of Abraham. God focuses on one man, Abraham who was in Haran. And God told Abram, Look, Abram, I want you to get out of your land, out of your country, Haran. Leave your family and go to a place that I will show you. Now, Abram was a man of faith. He was a man of mistakes, but he was a man who, without knowing where he was going, when he was going to get there or how, He just knew God told him to go and that God was going to show him. So he went. And he took some of his family. You remember he took Lot. And then Lot, his nephew, uh, oftentimes was just selfish and would look uh, upon the land. And when Abraham and Lot said, okay, which land do you want and which land do am I going to pick? Lot looked at what was green and beautiful. So he went out near Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then as he was there, the tribes that were, lived nearby came, and they stole Lot, and they took his goods and his family members. They kidnapped Lot. And so Abram had to go in with his servicemen, his uh, soldiers. And they went and they fought, and they got Lot and his family back. And then you remember, as he was there and the king of Salem came, and then Melchizedek, the high priest. He came and he gave Abram a blessing. You see, he had this first communion that we see with him. And the Melchizedek is quite a mysterious and interesting person to be able to bless Abram. Later on in the New Testament, we find out that it was through the order of Melchizedek and his priesthood, that Jesus Christ was a priest, the greatest high priest. And it's because of this reason that many believe that Jesus actually was Melchizedek. Now, continuing on with Abram and his family as they're growing, Abram had his wife, Sarah, and Sarah had her maid, Hagar. And then God gave a promise To Abraham. God told Abraham that he was going to make him this father of many. And that it was going to be through his own seed, through his son, that he would have land and great nations come from him. So after some time, there was a lot of years that were going on. And Abraham was already an old man. And he was waiting and waiting in his 80s and nothing happened. So finally his wife came to him and was like, hey, like, we're not going to have kids. We're old. So look, why don't you take my maid, Hagar, marry her as your wife, and then go into her and maybe perhaps God is going to use the son that you have from her as the promised son. And so Abram was like, all right, sounds like a good plan. And he was led by the flesh, as was Sarah in her doubtfulness, not having faith in God's word, both led by the flesh. So Abram and Hagar had a son named Ishmael. And I believe that Sarah was thinking that she was going to raise this son herself. But once Ishmael was born, Hagar named him Ishmael, which wasn't a Hebrew name. And from there, Abraham and Sarah were kind of disconnected from Ishmael and Hagar. Sarah did not raise Ishmael, which was the plan, right? They were going to raise the son. But some drama had to have come up for Sarah and Hagar. They began to have this animosity towards one another, and Sarah wanted to get rid of her. But Hagar, she followed the Lord. As her and Ishmael fled, the Lord met them. The Lord met them and told him, look, go back, return to Sarah and dwell with her. And this is where we are leaving off now, right up. We're picking the story up now with Abram and Sarah. And they're still waiting. Now here's the interesting thing about chapter 16 and 17, that God's already given the promise to Abram But now between chapters 16 and 17, 13 years pass. So Abraham is waiting a long time for the Lord to finally fulfill this promise. But he's already learned what happens when you act in the flesh. Now that we're all cut up, let's look at chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So now Abraham, almost 100 years old, the Lord visits him and says, I am almighty God. That word for almighty God, there's a name, it's El Shaddai. He says, walk before me and be blameless. This word for blameless, it means perfect without blemish, complete, whole, it means full and perfect it means sincerity without spot or blemish, undefiled and upright. This is what God was asking of Abraham. And this is still what God asks of us to aim for perfection. Now, God knows that we're sinners and that we're going to fail, that we're going to mess up. But God does not say, it's okay, go ahead and sin. No, God desires that we become more like his son, Jesus. God desires that we become closer to perfection because God is perfect. God is good. So he told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Now, thank God for his grace and mercy because if we were needed perfection in order to enter into heaven, there would be no way. It'd be absolutely impossible. Now, God tells Abraham that I'm going to make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. This covenant, we look back at Genesis 12, verses one through three, and we read about this covenant. God told Abraham, he says, get out of your country From your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the covenant that God made with Abraham. Land, a great nation, and those who blessed him would be blessed. And those who cursed him would be cursed. In chapter 17, verse three, we we read on. It says, then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. See, in the presence of God, Abram, what's he do? He falls on his face. And that's often what happens when we read in the Bible and people came into just the presence of an angel. They'd, Fall down and be terrified at the presence of God, Abram falls completely on his face. And God talked with him. Now, remember, right now, Abram still doesn't have this offspring from Sarah, who God promised. And God again is telling him, Look, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abram knows he's speaking of through Sarah, but he still hasn't seen that promise fulfilled yet. And then he does something special right here. He changes his name. You see, Abram's name, it means high father. It's this authority, this high authoritative father. That's what Abram means. And now God himself changes Abram's name To Abraham, which means father of many. Not just the father, the high father of one or two, but father of many. Now, this is special because Abram was going to be here the first Jew. He was the beginning of the Jewish people, of the Jewish race, their ethnic culture. And not only that, but on a spiritual level, Abraham was now becoming the father not only of the Jews, but of all the spiritual children of God, in a sense. Now, not father in the sense of God the father, but he's still the patriarch to the Jews. And being the patriarch of the chosen people, the Jewish nation. God grafted in the Gentiles and all the other believers into this family tree. We've been added into it. And here Abraham is still this patriarch image. So in a spiritual sense, he's the father of many, many nations. And this is what I love about the Lord is his ability to take a man like Abraham and then to create Abraham, Abraham who couldn't have a son through Sarah. God did the impossible and made him a man of many nations. And we often see that in the Bible where God completely takes someone and makes them brand new. And then we see it in our own lives where God gives us a brand new name, a brand new start being made new. That's what we need. We're in our past lives. We were heathens and sinners and we needed the Lord to come in and save us, to take us out of that miry clay, out of the pit, to set our feet upon the rock. So that we can know that we're loved, that God wants to use us. God has this ability to do this in your life, and not only in the tremendous ways only, but also in the little ways, where some of us say, "Well, you know, this is the way I was raised. This is how I've been my whole life. Uh, you know, I I grew up in the hood, and you know, the hood never leaves me, and." You know, God has the ability to take all of that and still make you new so that we can shed away this life and allow God himself, Jesus, his life to be placed upon us where it's him living through us. And those sins that we struggle with, God is the God who can break through those impossible struggles, right? God is the God who can break through and make you new. And I love how God has this ability to do that, to redeem us. Uh, This Redeemed Church Fellowship, the reason why I love the idea of redeemed, of redemption, is because there's two kind of definitions, I see it, of of redemption. The classic definition of redemption is redeemed to actually take something that you've purchased and to claim it as yours because that's what God did with us through his son, Jesus Christ. He claimed victory over death and hell, the grave over the enemy, and his prize was us. We were his prize, He's redeemed us. He's claimed us as his own. We are no longer our own, but we are God's. We are owned by God, not that we are God's. Now, the other idea of redemption that I love is this idea of having a really bad season. Maybe in sports, there was uh, just, you know, you went out, in the field, and all the shots that you were supposed to make that you practiced so hard for, you just failed. You didn't make them. And you just completely fell on your face in this season. And then in the next season that comes, there's this desire and perhaps even the ability to redeem, to actually make it, you do such a great job or what? This next season, this new season is so amazing and so great that the old season is completely forgotten about. That's what I experienced in my life. Where all the years that Satan had eaten away, had stolen from me, God had replaced with so much of himself that all that, God, that Satan had done, it's forgotten. It's not me anymore. I'm not that person. That person's dead spiritually. and God has created a new man. And now the work that God is doing in this season, it redeems all the terrible things from the past. And I love that idea of redemption. God has redeemed me. God has the ability to do that. See, humankind, even in their worldly redemption, it's not eternal. Only God's redemption is eternal. Look at verse six. As Abram is given this new name, Abraham, father of many. In verse six, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, As an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, God is saying all these blessings upon Abraham's future descendants that he's referring to this everlasting covenant. When I see how God gave the Jewish people an eternal covenant, I'm reminded that God is not done with the Jewish people. It's an eternal covenant and God doesn't breathe lies onto the Bible. So there's not a replacement theology where the Gentiles have become in place of the Jews. No, we've been grafted into their family, but God is still working and he has plans for the Jewish nation. And as I read verse 8, that God said that the land in which they were strangers, the land of Canaan, he's going to give that to them as an everlasting possession. That Israel is going to belong to the Jews for eternity. I'm reminded that the Jews live there and they belong there because God says they do. He gave them that land. See, I can't argue With a person that Israel belongs there, that the Jews belong in Israel on the basis of them being there first. Because as we read, they were strangers in this land. The Canaanites lived there first. So I'm not going to be able to argue with the person on who was there first. I understand that the Jews belong there because God has given them the land. Now, if a person does not believe this point, then my conversation on this topic with them has to end at that point. I would just have to convince them of the God of the Bible, which I can't do. The Holy Spirit has to do that. And God can use me, but that's, again, the work of this Holy Spirit. So right now, the, the Jews and the Palestinians, as they fight and they battle, know that God is sovereign over all this. Today, there's talks of uh, Israel being in a national uh, illegal activity for the settlements that they have there in the West Bank. And I don't know all about the politics of it, but I know what God says in his word, and I know he's not done with the Jewish people. So pray for Israel, pray for the Jewish people, pray for the peace of Israel. This is right out of the Bible. It says to do this. And look at verse nine. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I'm wondering if Abraham was like, say what? (laughs) At this point, in verse 12, he who is eight days old among you, you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant okay there's a lot going on in these few verses let's talk about the covenant that god made with abraham for a moment he said look i'm gonna make this covenant that i'm giving you this land many generations and i want to give you this symbol that i'm going to keep this covenant and you're going to be noticed and recognized by this symbol and the symbol was circumcision now, this was the literal cutting away of the foreskin. And this was done for all the Jewish people on the, or to all the Jewish men on the eighth day after their birth. Now, you wonder why. Why would God choose to do this? It was very symbolic. You see, this was the instrument that a man would use the vessel that a man would use for either great good to multiply and make this great nation or also for great evil. And God wanted to place his mark upon the vessel that these men used this so that people would know, that they would know that they were under the Lord's divine law, that what they did, their actions that they committed needed to be governed by God. Now, this is the literal circumcision in the Old Testament, and God takes this symbol and then he gives us an additional in the New Testament or a complete meaning of it. Not additional, but a completion of it. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about this. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. You don't need to turn there. But Paul talks about circumcision. He says the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, Uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. See, Paul talked about how the Jews went about with the literal practice of circumcision. And the Gentiles were not doing the circumcision, but Paul stated that they were spiritually circumcised in the heart. Now, the spiritual meaning of this in the new testament it's this cutting away of the worldly desires from our hearts from our minds it's this cutting away of the flesh the foreskin of the heart and in that same sense because our heart what comes from it is great good and great evil god wants to place his mark upon our hearts The same way he did it in the Old Testament, he wants that in our hearts. So we need to check our hearts. We need to check our motives. And it's not just the outside ritual that matters. But what counts importantly is also the inward. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 says, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So God gave Abram and Abraham this covenant. Now I do want to briefly mention for the moment, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but in those verses we read in verses 11 through 14, they do talk about uh, buying people and foreigners. Now in the Bible, when you study it, as you get into the history of things, uh, there's a, a type of slavery that was an enslavement, something that was harsh and cruel. And there was another type, and they use the term slavery, but it's, it's much different than a harsh slavery. This type of slavery, it, it wasn't about race. It was people's occupation that they would use. Um, and there's a whole historical side of that. If you have any questions on that, we could jump into that topic. Um, One day I'll get a little more in-depth. But I digress. Continuing on in verse 15. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Here God is doing this again, but now with Sarah. Her name Sarai means my princess. That's what her name Sarai means. But now Sarah simply means princess, the princess, being that she was going to be this mother of nations. It's much more grand. And God is giving her this promise again. She hasn't had children yet. She's been trying And failing, but God is giving her again this promise, giving Abraham this promise to Sarah that she will be the mother of nations. And in verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now in verse 17, when Abraham is laughing, this is not the laughter of disbelief because later on when Sarah laughs in disbelief, God rebukes her. But here Abraham is just like, oh my gosh, I'm like 100 years old and I'm gonna have a kid. This is nuts. This is crazy, God. You're, you're awesome. And it's this joy of God that he's laughing about this. And he's just looking at the impossibility of the situation and realizing that God had to take him to a point in his life where it was impossible for him to fulfill what he thought he was supposed to. And it's usually at that point in time when God acts, when God moves. He likes to take us, God, I, I, sometimes. I, I've seen in the Bible and in my life, He likes to take us to that point where we're facing the impossible in order so that we can learn to have faith in him. And when we are counting on our own resources and our own plans and ideas, sometimes God just doesn't move that great until we reach that point where we can't do anything. We're at the edge of the Red Sea and there's nothing that we can do now. We have nothing, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And it's then that God opens the Red Sea. God likes to take us to that point of impossibility. He likes to take us to that point of breaking so that we can fully depend and trust upon him and not ourselves. And this is what he did in Abraham's life, an old man. In verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful. And I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Now, God didn't submit to Abraham's lack of faith when he said, well, look, take Ishmael. Ishmael could be the guy. He could be the chosen son. God's like, look, Ishmael was a work of your flesh, and I'm not gonna take a work of your flesh and make that my promise to you, no. God says, we're gonna stick with the plan that I have for you, Abraham. Verse 21, by my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, at this set time next year. Wow, finally, after all these years of waiting and waiting, God is telling him, look, okay, it's going to be a year from now. A year from now, you're going to have the kid. And I'm sure Abraham was overjoyed with like, a year from now? Oh, my goodness. Verse 22, then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, Every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day uh, as God had said to him. You see, Abraham's obedience, it's quick as our obedience needs to be, not delayed. 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh. Of his foreskin that very same day Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. You recall Moses uh, as he was journeying back to Egypt, uh, the Lord met him and his wife, and was about to kill Moses. So the wife quickly ran to their son and circumcised them, circumcised the son right on the road. See, God took this seriously. Now we also must take this cutting away of the flesh from our hearts seriously as God does. May we be completely surrendered to Him. May we constantly be seeking to walk blameless before Him. And may we trust that God has the power to make us new, to create a new man, a new woman, to break through those struggles, those trials, those anxieties, those fears. God has the ability to do the impossible. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We pray and we ask, Father, that you would just go before us this week. May we be made new every day. We thank you for this new life. I pray that your spirit would lead and guide us. Father, bless this Friday, Lord God, as we are preparing, Lord God, for this uh, night of a movie night, Lord God. Just bless it, Lord God. We love you, Father. Father. We praise you. We thank you. We worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger The king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth
0: we see you guys Friday night in the backyard following CDC guidelines we will be watching the life of David so we hope to see you there at 6.30pm we love you guys and God bless